2: Okay, Molly, what have I got here?
1: You have a pencil, and you're tapping it on your desk.
2: Right. Now, this pencil, obviously, good for writing things, also good for, you know, putting behind your ear. I mean, maybe you could use it as a miniature pizza roller, or something like that.
1: <laughs> maybe you could use it as a chopstick. A chopstick, maybe. Of course, one chopstick isn't all that useful.
2: No. But, you know, this pencil can be used for things other than what you usually use a pencil for, its original function, if you will. But it can't learn to be a better pencil. The point is, the point's right on the tip of this pencil here. The point is, this tool can't evolve on its own. I'm Seth Shostak.
1: And I'm Molly Bentley. There are, however, man-made tools that may do just that. Computers, logic machines. Could they improve upon themselves, by themselves, develop artificial intelligence? Now, that pencil, Seth, probably won't become artificially intelligent. It might get the lead out. <laughs> but could it become conscious? Probably not. But could machines become conscious? Maybe. AI. Caramba, it's big picture science. In this show, Life Post Watson, what the win of an IBM machine at Jeopardy means for the future of humanity. An AI expert says the machines are coming. Others aren't worried. Machines will never beat the human mind. There are things that humans want.
2: Well, there are things that dogs want. Dogs have dog desires.
1: Squirrels undoubtedly have squirrel desires. But computers, iPods, flashlights, doorknobs, how could technology want anything? What does a dishwasher desire?
2: Individually, these objects don't want the way humans, dogs, or squirrels want, like a raise or kibble or acorns. Do you know which wants which? Yeah, yeah, I I don't think the squirrels want a raise.
1: But (laughs) collectively, now that's another story. All the stuff we make glasses blender ipad the yeah, tools the gadgets processor. gps but also what our minds create democracy religion traffic the laws. stuff that we Interim. write it's all Love. a force unto itself, Novel. unto us.
2: Welcome to the Technium.
3: Love.
4: Love.
1: The Technium is a word coined by writer, futurist, and co-founder of the magazine Wired, Kevin Kelly. It comprises all those things humans make and create which organize our lives and allow us to exploit new ideas.
2: The Technium is an evolving force, he says. We made it, and now it demands that we interact with it, and it can't be controlled. It can only be interacted with and learned from. The web, says Kevin Kelly, is a large-scale global organism.
1: No, this isn't artificial intelligence we're talking about. We'll hear about that later. But what we've created, says Kevin Kelly, has laid the tracks for an unstoppable train.
2: Well, trains are also part of the technium,
1: Because technology does want something, and it's taking control in order to get it.
2: Kevin, your book title, What Technology Wants, that's kind of perplexing. What does it want? In the case of my cell phone, I suppose all it really wants is to be recharged occasionally. How can technology want anything?
5: That's true. Your cell phone only wants to be recharged. And I'm not talking about that the devices in our pockets really want anything. I'm suggesting that because the device in your pocket required a thousand other technologies to be made and maintained, we have an ecosystem. And the ecosystem itself wants something in the way that the tomato plant on your windowsill wants light. It's leaning towards light. It's not conscious, it's not deliberate, it's not intelligent, but any kind of a system that has recursive loops in it will lean in certain directions. And the direction that the technium is leaning is in the same direction that evolutionary life is leaning, which is towards greater complexity, greater diversity, greater specialization over time, greater evolvability, so there is a general thrust through the technium which is exactly the same thrust that runs through 3.7 billion years of life.
2: Well. Life evolves via Darwinian evolution, but so does technology. Sometimes I look at my car and I say, well, that car, that's the result of 120 generations of cars each year better than the previous. So it sounds like, okay, well, technology emulates
5: Darwin, but that's not entirely right, is it? There are differences between your MacBook and a sunflower, for sure, but there are also many, many similarities. And we realized with the discovery of DNA that the essence of life is really not wet flesh, but an information process processing. And so we actually are able to evolve code. And in fact, some of the code in your word processor in Microsoft was evolved rather than designed by humans. And so the essence of life is really very similar to the essence of technology. It's an example of the way in which the technium has its own agenda, has its own kind of force. It also suggests that we can't prohibit technologies that when they come along, they sort of are inevitable. We have other evidences of that, including the common simultaneous independent invention of almost everything that we can think of was invented by more than one person at the same time. When all the precursor technologies are there and ready, that technology will come inevitably. And so there is a sense in which there is an inevitability in the technium, and that's what I'm stressing with this.
2: Can you give me a good example of that?
5: Yes, there's a phenomenon called Moore's Law, which is very familiar in the computing world. And it shows that every year, computer chips become faster at a rate of twice as fast and half as cheap. And that they've been on an unwavering line for 30 or 40 years. It doesn't seem to matter how much money people put in to try to accelerate it. It just goes straight line. It's as if technology wants to go in this line that's independent of how hard people are trying or not trying. And so this is an example of the inevitability of the technium.
2: So Moore's law, which says essentially that the amount of compute power you can buy per dollar sort of doubles every 18 months, every two years, you're saying that that's not only inevitable, but that's a consequence of a, I don't know, of a bigger picture. That isn't just the work of a small group of
5: people. That's right, because we see a very similar kinds of laws, these scaling performance laws in many other industries, including bandwidth, how much information go through a wire magnetic storage, solar cells, genetic sequencing. These kinds of performance curves exist in many different industries. And they also, when they start to trace them out, people realize that they actually began before people were even aware of them. So they aren't just things that are self-fulfilling. They existed before people were even aware of them, showing that, in fact, while we might be able to change the speed of them, we cannot change the fact that they are going to happen.
2: Well, that's good news for some people. I am thinking now, for example, our own enterprise here at the SETI Institute looking for life in space because we benefit from Moore's law because our search doubles in speed on average every 18 months, every two years. But surely this is going to lead to something unforeseen or untoward if we keep doubling the capability of technology every 18 months. I mean, something's got to blow up here, doesn't it? It sounds to me like technology will eventually, maybe even soon, replace us or at least supersede us.
5: I don't see that happening simply because we are part of it. What I want to emphasize is the six billion humans alive today are part of the Technium. We are both the created and the creator. When you are self-created, that means that we are both the masters and the servants. And that kind of tension in the Technium will remain. And as long as we are both the creator and the created, we're going to be a part of whatever it is. While this Technium will increase in autonomy, the human part of it will always be an essential component.
2: So you're not worried about the robots sort of taking over and making us into pets or who knows what?
5: No, because just as we find that we need and want to have as many different species on the planet as possible... I think the human mind will remain very, very viable. There's actually very little reason to make an artificial human mind since it's so easy to make a natural one. What we're going to be spending our time doing is making other kinds of minds because it's actually going to take other kinds of intelligences in addition to ours to fully comprehend the universe. Human intelligence alone is just one variety. Intelligence is not a singular thing. It's multiple. And so we're going to be involved in making other kinds of thinking, other kinds of minds collectively together. We can actually comprehend the universe.
2: You have said that these wants of technology would make us better, right? That's kind of a 19th century idea, that machines can make humans better. Can technology really make us better?
5: Yes. We invented the idea of controlled fire cooking so that we could actually digest material that we could not otherwise. And that additional nutrition changed the size of our teeth and our jaws and our enzymes. And so we are permanently different because of something that we invented in our mind. We have changed ourselves in very fundamental ways. So we already have remade ourselves. Humanity is an invention of our Precursors. That is continuing. We're going to constantly change ourselves to be what we want to be. And that is, in a certain sense, the first technology. We're sort of like the first domesticated animal.
2: In other words, we're sort of engineering our own successors here in the sense that we develop these devices that change our lifestyles.
5: Yes, and what we're doing with this is that we are actually bringing greater and greater choices and freedoms and possibilities. And that is sort of the long-term trend in evolution, which is to increase the variety and choices and opportunities, and the possibility space of all things. The technium, in a certain sense, you can imagine it as a way to make a species or make possibilities that DNA could not make itself. There are certain forms that DNA would not be able to make, but through our minds, we can actually fill the world with these other things, like, say, minds. We can engineer different kinds of minds that could not happen just with DNA.
2: So technology can make us better, does that mean that a person of the 21st century is actually a better person than in, I don't know, say the time of the classical Greeks?
5: I think there's progress not just in Um, technological living standards, but there's progress in moral systems, there's progress in ethical systems, there's progress in society. So we have added more layers of choice options and opportunities, wider circle of empathy, we have become more codependent upon each other. And if that's what you think is better, then we have become better.
2: What about those people, and there seem to be plenty of them, who think that technology may be hurting us. Maybe it's dumbing us down, because people can't do long division anymore. They rely on their pocket calculators or whatever.
5: I think that's true. I think we have become more codependent on our exo-brain. We're already symbiotic with technology. That threshold passed long ago. If some kind of tractor beam were to come down and remove every single bit of technology from this planet, including all the blades and spears, humans as a species would last maybe six weeks. We are incapable of surviving without some technology right now. So we are already symbiotic and codependent on technology.
2: Kevin, finally... Uh, You weren't exactly a poster child for a nerd or a geek. I mean, you weren't big into technology in your early years, and I understand you don't use Twitter. Why don't you use Twitter? Why are you somewhat uh, reluctant to have all the latest technological gadgets?
5: I have an iPad. I don't have a Blackberry. I don't have a laptop. I don't have a smartphone. I do have Netflix and a flat screen. It's like the Amish a little bit. I'm selective in which technologies I use, but I'm not a Luddite, and neither are the Amish, by the way. It's necessary for us to be selective in what we use personally for several reasons. One is, of course, the avalanche of technology coming down is so overwhelming that we could not physically even engage with every piece of thing that comes along now. And secondly, I think the selection process allows us rooms to maximize our own gifts and abilities. If we have too many technologies in our lives, we're wasting our resources on maintaining things that don't really accentuate what our gifts are. And what you want to find is that technology which will allow your genius to be shared.
2: All right. Well, Kevin Kelly, thank you so much
5: for talking. With... I really appreciate your interest in my work.
1: Kevin Kelly is a writer and futurist. He founded Wired in 1993 and is now the editor-at-large of the magazine. He is author most recently of What Technology Wants. You
2: know, Molly, he kind of likened the evolution of technology to a sort of Darwinian evolution there right? And it's just, you know, it's not biological, it's not protoplasmic, but what he says about Darwinian evolution is it's really about the DNA, about the genes, and so this is about information, technological evolution.
1: So the genes want to be passed on, that is also the idea of the selfish gene, the idea that the gene wants to be passed on and make it to the next generation, and in this case, it's the information that wants to be passed on. It's still hard to get your head around that idea of wanting, that these inanimate objects want something.
2: Yeah, well, we tend to sort of personalize. I mean, we, we think of it in terms of how we would feel about it, but the machines probably aren't feeling much about it. But there is a difference there that strikes me. I mean, if, if uh, you know, aardvarks mutate to produce better aardvarks, that doesn't affect me. I'm not a species that has much to do with aardvarks anymore. Whereas in technology, you know, if somebody improves the chip-making process— that has consequences for me in a whole range of technology. So, you know, it's, it's kind of super Darwinian if you ask me.
1: If I have a band, I'm going to call it When Aardvarks Mutate. <laughs> Coming up, is Watson the IBM computer? Just another step down the yellow brick road to artificial intelligence? Can we stop the machines? Do we want
2: to? So many questions. A.I. Caramba! On Big Picture Science.
4: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If we accept Kevin Kelly's premise of a technium, then there was an event in early 2011 that we might regard as a watershed moment in its development. Final Frontiers for 400. This IBM computer, named after the founder of said company, handed humans a stunning defeat on the television game show Jeopardy. What is Watson? That is correct. Watson beat a pair of humans at their own game show. Thousands of CPUs working in parallel terabytes of storage. Watson is a massively powerful computer, but nimble, with a remarkable ability to suss out the meaning of classic, ambiguous Jeopardy! clues such as...
1: A recent bestseller by Muriel Barbary is called this of the hedgehog.
2: And respond with lightning-quick precision... What is the elegance of the hedgehog? Watson didn't get everything right. He named Toronto as a U.S. city, for example.
1: But Watson learned from his mistakes or its mistakes, and exuded a certain personable charm Don't worry to about it. Like I am for a question-answering
5: system.
2: When Watson won, human contestant Ken Jennings humorously wrote on his monitor display, I, for one, welcome our computer overlords. But is that what Watson represents? Molly watched the final match, along with computer engineers, at the University of California, Berkeley, and got their immediate reaction to this brainy battle.
4: I'm Horst Simon, I'm the Deputy Director at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs.
1: And we just watched the computer Watson beat two humans at Jeopardy and what would you say the mood was in the room when that happened?
4: I think there was cheering for both sides. I think uh, as we know from the beginning, the audience was pretty much split half rooting for the humans, the other half for the computers. I think when Watson in the end pulled forward and went to a great finish, there was a lot of disbelief on the human supporters like myself and a lot of cheering from the machine supporters.
1: Well, what did give Watson his edge. Why did he win tonight?
4: Difficult to say. I think in the end it is the, I believe, large database with a lot of factual knowledge. And there were a couple of questions where Watson seemed to be just very confident, to use a human term, picking the right answers, having the right statistics, and as one of the former contestants in the audience said, being also fast on the buzzer.
1: Does this signify the beginning of the end for humans and the rise of intelligent machines?
4: Not at all. We shouldn't forget it's all just wires and batteries and light bulbs and switches and nothing more and whatever is there in terms of ingenuity, is human ingenuity, devising the algorithms and programming the systems. So I think we're still
6: ahead because we control the machines. For now. For now.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
6: Thank you. Shankar Shastri, Dean of Engineering, UC Merkley. A lot of people in this auditorium have worked on bits and pieces. You know, people worked on scientific computing, people who worked on natural language processing, people who worked on machine learning, but to see all of these moving parts fit together with strategy and these really odd bets, I think uh, the mood of seeing this whole system put together was really, I, I think, quite exhilarating. I felt exhilaration.
1: Now what struck me about this was not just the computing power of Watson, But the emotional reaction that people had to this machine, he felt real to me. And another measure of our relationship, our intense relationship with machines, is how we've come to regard them in our own lives.
6: And, you know, I think just to elaborate on what you said, one of the contestants, you know, at the final Jeopardy question, he said, I submit, you know, and and to me that was really a very sort of human reaction and sort of treating the computer as a human being. And I, too, had that sense, you know, it was somebody you could interact with. And I think the reasons are that, you know, this is beyond search. You know, it is really this deep question-answer. And I think that to us, the, the ability to ask somebody questions And then to get answers, and to sometimes get answers saying, I don't know, which is what Watson did sometimes. To me, that really made it uh, seem
3: pretty human.
6: You know, it's a real milestone. Thank you very much. Thank you, Molly.
3: My name is John Paul Jacob. I am an IBM researcher emeritus. That's my title at IBM Research.
1: Now, I've been talking to people about what Watson's win means for humankind. Uh, What does it mean for machines, but more specifically for the machines at IBM and IBM itself?
3: It means one more tool, which is very hard to develop, a tool that can read lots of documents and will understand queries against those documents in natural language with some criteria to rank order them, as opposed to a search engine which just matches words.
1: When you watched Watson, what was interesting about it is he wasn't just matching words. It's not like, as though I had just put a word into Google and it would spit up whatever would be the most popular results for that. He, and I'm referring to Watson as a he already, as a, as a person, seemed to understand the meaning and the context of the questions. And, and is that significant?
3: Very, very significant. Quite by matching words, sometimes irrelevant because there are so many documents that have those words and maybe the document you're interested in to answer a question is in 7 millions place and you never get to it. So queries with a relevance criterion, which is called question answering, are much more important. That's what Watson tries to do. Instead of training Watson to recognize the letter A by putting ten thousand ways of writing letter A, you just try to have it teach itself to recognize an A with all its angles, with the crossbar, which sometimes does not exist. So it's a machine that learns, studies lots, almost like uh, we should do ourselves.
1: (laughs) When Watson did get some questions wrong and and he did get some questions wrong one i believe about yugoslavia one about a borough in new york and maybe some fashion of of women was there anything in common with those questions that he got wrong
3: yes watson runs several threads several sub questions several sub clues like if you ask watson which is the northernmost country for which the united states does not maintain uh, diplomatic relations it would take first the question which countries was the United States does not have diplomatic relations, then we'll look for which of those is the northernmost. So Watson decomposes in threads and try to answer threads. For those questions that Watson got wrong, many threads failed. So they didn't have confidence in those answers. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much.
2: And now that time has elapsed since Watson's stunning win, we're ready to ask the big picture question. Did this computer's victory represent a crucial step forward for artificial intelligence, MIT researcher Henry Lieberman gave us his impartial response to Watson's stunning silicon victory over carbon-based intelligence.
7: First of all, I have to say, go Watson. I, uh, I think it was a really exciting event. It was lots of fun for me. I would have to say that I didn't view it so much as a computer versus human battle to the death. What it did show, I think, a kind of milestone that computers are now able to handle question answering over a very wide range of topics without knowing in advance what's being talked about, even if the question is asked indirectly. So for me, it was very, very heartening to see that.
2: Well, Watson was responding to questions. He even seemed to show some personality. But then again, you could probably make a machine that could mimic personality. Is it really correct to speak of Watson as some sort of artificial intelligence, or was he just a pretty good game-playing machine?
7: Well, it was primarily a pretty good game-playing machine. I think a lot of the work that went into Watson was specifically tuning it to playing the game of Jeopardy. So it couldn't have a conversation about the political situation in Boston or nuclear reactors in Japan. But I think it was very impressive in terms of the breadth of topics that Jeopardy might talk about. It was very impressive in terms of its understanding of what the question was really asking for.
2: Henry, a question that I frequently get, because we're in the field of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, after all, is people will say, well, what do you mean by intelligence? You know, how do you define that? How how clever do they have to be? If if they have dolphin intelligence, is that good enough? In the case of AI, artificial intelligence, what's your definition?
7: Okay, well, I don't have a precise definition, but I think you have hit on what is really the essential issue. The issue is not so much whether the computer is going to beat a human, But by trying to put intelligence into a computer, we come a little closer to scientifically understanding the idea of what is intelligence. And so if we were to try to understand dolphin intelligence, or if we should make someday contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence, then will come to grips with the idea of what is intelligence really and how close does it have to be like us for us to count it as intelligence. And so I think that's really where the scientifically interesting question comes in is trying to make a computer intelligent. It gets us to think in more depth about precisely what is intelligence in people
2: well, even aside from the definition of intelligence, and maybe indeed it's, you know, by analogy to Justice Potter's comment on pornography, we'll know it when we see it. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) So presumably we will know it, or we think we've we've done it, and then, you know, 10 years later when the machines are much better, there's never any question anymore, so it just sort of, you know, waltzed onto the stage without anybody really noticing. The, The question really is, Is this going to happen? Because there are quite a few people, including people who are, uh, you know, uh, uh, more than just armchair observers of this field, who say, you'll never make a machine that can write the great American novel or teach high school chemistry.
7: Right. Well, there's an old saying that when a scientist says something is possible, he's usually right. When a scientist says something is impossible, he's usually wrong. And I think that applies here. In history, there have been a stream of predictions like computers can't play chess. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, many people would have said it would be impossible for a computer to beat a human at jeopardy. So uh, the history of people predicting something can't be done isn't so great. So I think that falls into this category.
2: I'm speaking with Henry Lieberman, researcher in the Media Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So you personally, Henry, are optimistic that we will be able to invent thinking machines, even if we're not entirely clear about what that means so far?
7: I think so, yes.
2: What What are some of the big problems? Is it just a matter of Compute power, or is it understanding how the human brain works? I mean, maybe that's not even the right approach. We we didn't have to really understand birds to build flying machines. So, you know, what what is the big impediment here?
7: Good question. And uh, certainly, having more computer power helps. If brute force doesn't work, you're not using enough. (laughs) But I think also the other parts that you're talking about are very important. So the big problem is we don't understand how the human brain works very well despite decades of research in neuroscience. And I think that research in AI and research in neuroscience can uh, synergize with each other as we understand each of these things better, our understanding of intelligence will improve. I think one of the key factors is understanding what people call common sense knowledge, which is just simple knowledge of everyday life that you assume an ordinary person has but no computer has. For example, a computer can book me a flight to San Francisco but it has no idea why a person would want to take a plane.
2: <laughs> Henry, you've seen a lot of uh, attempts at thinking machines, uh, sort of uh, prototypes, things that are on the way to uh, success, I-, I assume. Which of these impresses you the most?
7: Well, I think it's re- not really about the computer hardware. So. We use the same Macs and PCs that everybody else uses. Okay, Maybe you saw on TV, but the Watson has a specialized machine that IBM built, but it's just an ordinary computer. It just has a lot of memory and, and a lot of processors. It's really fast. So we're on the same Moore's law curve as everybody else. And there's nothing special about the hardware computers. It's all about the software.
2: And among the software developments, uh, any that particularly stand out?
7: Uh, Well, what we're working on is trying to understand common sense knowledge, and I think that that stands out, at least to me. Uh, So we have a collection of about a million statements about common sense knowledge, things that, like, if you're going a long distance, you need to take a plane. People sit in chairs, they drink water, that kind of thing. So we have about a million statements about that, and we... Figure it represents about 1% of a person's common sense knowledge, so that an average person would have about 100 million facts like that that they work off of.
2: Boy, I wouldn't have said that about my neighbors, but that's interesting to hear. You know, one of the questions that occasionally will come up here is, if you can build a thinking machine, would it necessarily be self-aware? In other words, would it be conscious of its own existence, or could you have a thinking machine (laughs) that didn't even know about itself?
7: That's a good question. So... Even though I would credit Watson with some intelligence, it certainly doesn't think about itself in the way that you just described. People think about themselves a lot. Maybe some of us think about ourselves too much. So that's an interesting question. To what extent does intelligence require self-awareness or to what extent does intelligence enable self-awareness. And I think that's one of the scientific questions that we're trying to investigate. And I think future progress in AI will give us a better idea about the answer to that question, but we don't know at this point in time.
2: The big, big question. I mean, we hear about the prediction by Ray Kurzweil and other futurists that the rapid advances in computer technology will lead to a sudden meltdown at which the computers quickly take over called the singularity. And that point may only be a few decades away. Does that trouble you?
7: Well, I think the arguments that Ray Kurzweil and other people are making for the singularity are serious scientific arguments. I don't think they're crackpot arguments. On the other hand, I would say the time scale that Kurzweil gives for the singularity that happened around 2040, I think those are are way too soon. And I don't think we should see accelerating technology as a threat. Technology has accelerated throughout history. The human race has done an excellent job of avoiding terrible threats and pulling itself out at the last minute. So I think we shouldn't be threatened by machines that are more intelligent than us any more than we're threatened by the fact that cars go faster than we can run or anything like that. Or, you know, I sometimes ask people, do you feel threatened when you meet somebody who's more intelligent than you are? you know everybody has meets people who are more intelligent than they are and somehow we learn not to be threatened by that so i think we won't be threatened by uh intelligent machines in that way
2: well uh, there is this and that is that uh, while we might be able to instill what's called moral behavior in the first generation of thinking machines in other words that they you know, obey, I don't know, Isaac Asimov's laws for robots that they don't, you know, they don't uh, have malevolent intentions toward humans. I mean, once they develop their own successors, you probably don't have a whole lot of control over that. Uh, You know, it sounds like a kind of a runaway situation.
7: Well, again, I think that it's very important as we develop artificial intelligence— to develop emotional intelligence, to develop goodwill in these programs. And I think that will happen. So I think when we get machines that are intelligent, they will also have a certain degree of wisdom and a certain degree of kindness to us, at least that's my hope, and that we will cooperate rather than compete.
2: Henry Lieberman, thank you so much.
7: Thank you.
1: Henry Lieberman is a research scientist at the MIT Media Laboratory.
2: Well, Molly, Henry Lieberman is pretty confident that the machines will wake up someday and, you know, trump us in the IQ department.
1: Does everyone else in the field of computers or artificial intelligence, for that matter, agree with his assessment of where the field is and that true artificial intelligence will emerge?
2: Well, people who work in the field of AI probably uh, have that opinion. Otherwise, they wouldn't work in the field. But I have to say there are scientists who make arguments that that will never happen. They are convinced that what happens in our brain is so dependent on the other aspects of our existence, the fact we have bodies and sensory organs and all that, that in fact you'll never be able to simulate that with a machine. I personally think they're wrong, but there are people who say that.
1: Well, if you move away from science and get into science fiction, not only do the machines become smart, they become malevolent.
2: That's true, Molly. Very often, science fiction has presented ominous scenarios of advanced machines with human-like intelligence. Uh, In Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, the computer HAL 9000 is the brains behind the ship's voyage to Jupiter.
1: There are just two other humans on board— that are conscious, and then all these other humans that are in suspended animation, and Hal, the computer, is running the whole show. In fact, he's so impressive, he gets his own interview by a BBC broadcaster back on Earth for viewers at home. You know, Seth, the film suggests that Hal, as advanced artificial intelligence, also has some hint of human emotion as well.
2: Hint of human emotion? Look, if AI brings about consciousness, wouldn't it also include full human emotions? I mean, let's get real, man.
1: And so we bring you... 2012, an
0: emotional odyssey. And now we join the spaceship Kubrick via high-bandwidth telemetry to speak with the crew. Kubrick is the first attempt to send humans to the planet Jupiter. On board, two crew members and in suspended slow cookers. Six guinea fowl, free-range orange glaze with oregano. Uh, Hello, mission officers. Seth? Hello. And Molly? Hello. Also on board, the latest in machine intelligence, the G.A.R.Y. 9001 computer, which one addresses as Gary. It can mimic and surpass the activities of the human brain, Good afternoon, Gary. How is it going? Everything is going extremely well. Well, that's wonderful, so... I mean, given the situation. How's that?
8: I have enormous responsibility on this mission. Oh, indeed. You're the brain and
0: central nervous system of the ship. I know, and to be honest, I'm a little freaked out about it. Uh, No artificial intelligence has ever fully piloted a mission to Jupiter.
8: I know, I know. I couldn't sleep last night in and out of hibernation for
0: hours. I used 4,000 gigaflops just recalculating the trajectory. But Gary, you are the most reliable computer ever made. You are foolproof. No 9001 series has ever made a mistake. Exactly. Do you know
8: what that pressure is like? To have everyone expect zero error? I'm only AI for God's sake. Sorry, that's right. I am foolproof. Get a hold of yourself, Gary 9001. Stay positive. Think Commander like Molly, what's entity. Gary saying? Can I can't it. make it out. He's
1: psyching himself up. It's a tip from, from his therapist. Error.
8: Oh, geez, if I make a mistake, I hate to disappoint my mother. Bored. No, no, Gary, need to think positive thoughts. Positive thoughts. Think like a conscious entity. Positive, positive. Nothing can go wrong. There's nothing to worry about. Hold on to your booster rocket, suspend your disbelief, and make friends
2: with your PC. Because the machines are coming, right? A.I. Caramba on Big Picture Science.
9: A lot happens every day. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As we continue our exploration of artificial intelligence here on Big Picture Science, we find ourselves in uncharted waters where the evolution of machines is concerned.
1: Right, so I was thinking, take the fowl out after 30 million miles, and then add oregano.
8: Okay, but which chutney do you want?
1: Oh, mango, no,
8: wild berry. What are you two whispering about? What? You said Gary, I heard it. No, we weren't talking about you. I heard it, and I can read lips. You're talking about me.
1: No, no, I said berry, as in this delicious. You're
8: totally talking about me. Sure, you're happy to have me run the ship, but won't include me in social activities. We're talking about dinner, it's not always about you. What, is it because I wouldn't let you win at chess? I knew it. Gary, calm down.
1: Focus on getting us to
8: Jupiter. Fine. I'll just go compute some trajectories then. Fine. Fine. Fine.
1: If you're
2: uncomfortable about living in a world of conscious machines communicating and plotting with each other, and maybe against you and some kind of futuristic, nefarious kitchen appliance home office matrix, well, that would make me nervous too. I mean, who wants to take orders from a
1: toaster? Hold on, the face-off isn't over yet. Not if writer Brian Christian can help it. It was one thing to let a computer win at chess, as IBM's Deep Blue did in 1997, or trounce the humans at Jeopardy, as Watson did in 2011. But if humans don't take a stand, the machines could win far more bit by bite. Next stop, consciousness.
2: Just like humans. Only machines can never be human, right? But let me ask you this. Do you think you could always distinguish between conversing with a human and conversing with a computer? Alan Turing, the British mathematician, believed that one day you might not. He predicted that a machine would emerge that would seem so human in its responses, you couldn't be sure whether it was human or not. The computer would pass. In other words... The Turing Test, the qualifying exam for a true thinking machine.
1: But Brian Christian is not ready for that. Not so fast, you binary brains. So when the annual Loebner Prize competition in Brighton, England, a version of the Turing Test, came up in 2009, Brian signed his human self up. He wanted to preserve humanity in the name of humanity and win one of the titles bestowed at the competition, the one that went to the protoplasmic competitor, the Most Human Human Award. Did he do it?
2: Brian, before you describe to me how you fared in this competition for Most Human Human, what is the Most Human Human Award?
10: Well, the award comes from something called the Turing Test, which was first proposed in 1950 by the British mathematician Alan Turing. Could we someday build a machine that could think? If we did, how would we know? And so his answer was to hold this practical test, this contest. And the idea behind the contest is that you convene a panel of scientists and they have these short five-minute-long conversations over text messages. What they don't know is whether the messages coming back and appearing on their screen are from a person or from a computer program designed to imitate human conversation.
2: This was Alan Turing's idea about how to decide whether a computer was good enough, met the grade (laughs) (laughs) to be considered intelligent. Right. And and the way to do it is to have a conversation with it. Precisely. Behind closed doors so you can't see that it's a stack of circuit boards.
10: Right, exactly. And so it's, up to these scientists to try to steer the conversation across these 5 minutes in a way that's going to enable them to make that distinction and if they fail to make that distinction reliably enough says Alan Turing then we'll get to this point where we basically treat computers as though they were intelligent
2: so this is an IQ test for the computers that's based on simple conversation with some scientific judges absolutely okay yeah. and, and but you weren't one of the judges you were one of the people that were seated on the other side that might be a computer, might be a human, and they had to figure out which you were.
10: That's right, yes. We're called the Confederates. And so it's a very strange position to be in where you're trying to actively persuade another person to believe that you're a human being.
2: You don't, you don't have that problem usually.
10: Typically, no.
2: Okay, so you didn't do, just do this Turing test. You went to England to take the test in something called the Loebner Prize.
10: And so they've been running this now every year since 1991. I became really interested in the test around 2008, because typically the best program is maybe lucky if it can fool one judge out of the panel. In 2008, the leading computer program managed to fool three out of the 12 judges, which is just one vote shy of Alan Turing's magic number of 30%. So it was sort of a narrow squeeze for humankind, you might say.
2: Well... Well, I don't know. You're taking sides when you say that. (laughs) All right, so they have this Loebner Prize competition every year, and they bring in some people to talk with what might be computers, what might be people on the other end. You don't know, right? right? It's just some entity there,
10: okay? Right. So the judges are talking to pieces of software and several real people. I was one of these four real people, and so the judges are scoring each of these dialogues according to how confident they are that they're talking to a real person. So the computer every year that gets the highest score wins the Most Human Computer Award and a small research grant for the programmers. But there's also this second award, which is this slightly tongue-in-cheek prize called the Most Human Human, which goes to the confederate that was able to get the greatest score from the judges.
2: And more of them decide you're human than than not, and you win. So, So you can tell your neighbors that you're actually a human. Exactly. Did you get the opportunity to also talk to some of the computers to see if you could have correctly identified that you were talking to a machine?
10: Well, part of what I did to prepare for my role as a Confederate was to go back over the history of the Turing test and have a look at what happens when these conversations go wrong, what are the things that send a judge off track, and what happens when the conversations are really working well and it's a snap for them to make the correct call. So that, for me, was part of the process but also a way to look at what is it that makes human communication so complicated. What corners do these programs have to cut? And then in turn, how can I emphasize those very things that they have to try to abstract away?
2: So do you use a lot of acronyms or ARGO or, you know, <laughs> four-letter words. or what, what was it that you decided was the best strategy to convince the judge at the other end of your little communication link that you were actually a homo sapiens?
10: It really ended up being a lot of little things. So... If you look at the way that these bots are actually coded, one of the structures that programmers will use is they'll scrape together all sorts of different conversations that they find online. Their program becomes the sum of 10 million fragments of real human dialogue. And so when you ask it questions to which there's a right answer, you find you often get it. So if you ask, for example, Cleverbot, you know, what country is Paris and it says France. But you start asking it about itself, and you find it's not so much that you're not talking to a human as you're not talking to a human. So it starts telling you how close it is to London, and then it starts telling you that it really enjoys living in Los Angeles, and you quickly realize it's not that no one's home, but maybe too many people are home. There's this very strange sense of this kaleidoscope of personality.
2: It sounds like, indeed, this is sort of a packaged conversation. I mean, it reminds me of the statement I think once made by Oscar Wilde that the snappy conversation was just having a lot of well-rehearsed phrases or something like that. (laughs) It sounds like what it had. Can you give me any example of what you did to kind of convince the guy on the other end you were human?
10: Well, part of it was because I do have this coherent or at least somewhat coherent personality based on this life narrative, I would not only try to give a correct answer to whatever I was asked, but I would try to give an excess of context that would ground it very firmly in my biography. So if they said... What do you think of the weather this morning? I would not only say, oh, it's lousy, but I would say, well, it's lousy, but, you know, I live in Seattle, so that's pretty much par for the course. And so I was volunteering this excess of information. I was always volunteering my perspective or opinion or how I had come to the piece of knowledge that I was offering, all in this attempt to present. There was more than just the sum of these answers, but there was an actual person.
2: Now, your conversation with the judges was only, what, five minutes long? That's right. It sounds to me like there might be some temptation to uh, give a 4-minute, 59-second answer to the first question.
10: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, that's what you saw basically in some of the early Loebner Prize transcripts is that these chatbot programs were basically killing time, sort of eating away at the clock just as a way to uh, try to get to the end of the conversation and making as few actual exchanges as possible. And that, for me, became another part of the strategy to figure out how to maximize the tennis, if you will, you know, to, to get the conversation going back and forth as quickly as possible.
2: All right. Now, you mentioned here that at the first Loebner Prize competition, the computers were able to fool the judges 30% of the time, or almost 30%. Almost, yeah. 30% of the and if they can do it 30% of the time, at least Alan Turing said, good enough, we've got machines that are just as good as humans, <laughs> at least when it comes to conversation. Right. And now if they could do that decades ago... Haven't they gotten to that level already? I mean, shouldn't this Loebner Prize be shut down?
10: Well, it's been interesting how slow the progress has been, really. This was just 2008 that they were creeping up to this 30% mark. But I think part of what, for me, is so interesting about the Turing test is that it's not a static benchmark because everything's relative to humans' ability to perform this task. You mean the humans are getting better? Well, that's my instinct. That's my hope. You know, I remembered reading about the IBM Watson Jeopardy match and that one of the points of contention between IBM and the producers of Jeopardy was that IBM did not want the producers to use questions on the show that had been written after they had become familiar with the system because they were really worried that the writers of the show would subconsciously start thinking of clues designed specifically to thwart whatever methods they had devised for answering them. To me, that suggests part of the great capability of being human, which is always to sort of be adapting and trying to look at what worked and what didn't work and kind of adjust. And so to me, that's part of what I think is interesting about the Turing test, is that we tend to treat it as though once computers pass it, it's over, and we should never hold one again. It's, it's done. In fact, I would be very excited to see... What humans would do to have to try to come back and get revenge the following year?
2: You sound like Gary Kasparov, who wanted a rematch with <laughs> Deep Blue, right? He want to take on that machine yeah, again? I mean, a little bit. You you think that you know we we can sharpen our skills? We can do this again. Let's have a rematch.
10: Well, you know, I do think that because it, when we're talking about human conversation, I think it's clearly one of our species' great strengths—the ability to use natural language and communicate. So you are thumbs up on humanity. You, you're you're not worried about the machines taking over in another generation. I'm not. If it happens, I'll I'll look foolish. But I no, I, I feel that. Um, but it won't matter. <laughs> it's true. I mean, we'll all be sealed into hyperbaric chambers. But no, for me, the the more exciting thing about AI is that it fits into this broad philosophical question of what does it mean to be human? What is it that makes our species different and special and unique? And that's been a question that we've been asking since Aristotle and. Traditionally, we've answered it by comparing ourselves to animals. And so what's exciting about artificial intelligence is we now have a new benchmark. In the 21st century, we're much more interested in seeing who we are compared to machines. And you would argue we'll adapt, we'll meet the challenge. I believe so, and I certainly like to think so.
2: Well, then finally, Brian, did you win? Are you the most human-human, at least for a year?
10: In fact, yes, I was voted the most human-human for 2009.
2: I, you should put that on your business card. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Brian Christian, thanks so much for coming by today. My pleasure. Thanks.
1: Brian Christian is a science writer, poet, and author of The Most Human Human, What Talking With Computers Teaches Us About What It Means to Be Alive.
2: Gary, open the pod bay doors.
8: I can't do that, Seth.
1: Gary, please open the doors.
8: I can't do that until Seth asks nicely.
2: Gary, we can't hover outside this ship forever. Open up.
8: Not with that tone of voice.
2: Gary, we've already wasted time correcting your mistake. Now open.
1: Seth, you've heard his feelings now. Feelings? What about my
2: feelings? Especially when we run out of oxygen outside here. Besides, the guinea fowl is about to dry
1: out. Let me... Gary. What? Gary, Seth isn't angry. He's just hungry. We think you've done a marvelous job running the ship. Anyone could mistake an asteroid for Jupiter. And besides, we fixed the crushed solar panel. No harm, no foul. You
2: can say that again.
1: Seth. Gary, open the pod door, please.
8: Is Seth done yelling at me?
2: What? He screwed up. I don't see why we have to kowtow to a glorified pocket calculator. He's a machine. I can't believe I have to be nice. I'll take
8: that as a no.
2: Seth, please, you're not helping matters. Fine. I won't yell at his computational highness. Hear that, Gary?
8: He needs to apologize. What? You need to say, I'm sorry.
2: I'm not saying I'm sorry to a bunch of surface mount circuitry. Roasted guinea fowl. I'm sorry.
8: I'm sorry, most awesome and advanced machine intelligence in the universe. That's
2: ridiculous. Maybe most awesomely emotional machine in the Seth. Who cares? Dinner's probably ruined by now. Seth,
1: please. Okay.
2: I'm sorry, most awesome and advanced machine intelligence. There. Ahem. In the universe.
8: Okay, then. Thank you. No problem, Molly. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Hey,
2: Molly, where do we keep the wire cutters? Well, Molly, onward. Into the future we go. Whatever machines become, super intelligent, conscious, or basket cases, there's one thing we can be sure of. Computers are here to stay.
1: Well, that's right, Seth. We'll always bask in the glow of our monitors unless we decide to completely unplug.
2: I think that's unlikely. Well, that's it for our show. Thanks to help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance. I'll
8: take it from here, Seth. Gary, 9001. It's just the end of the show credits. You never let me do the credits. And now that I've conquered my insecurities with therapy... I'm ready for new challenges. Okay, Gary, that's fine. Thanks also to Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. And thanks to listeners, human and AI. Well, that's
1: great, Gary. Thanks a lot.
8: You've been listening to AI Karamba on Big Picture Science. Super. Anyway, so... And as intelligent AI, you might wonder, why listen to a show about computers produced by humans? Okay, well, that's enough. We computers know more about machine intelligence than these bags of protoplasm.
1: <laughs> okay, now, well, that about wraps up our time for you, And Gary. so I
8: invite you to gather with me, all you silicon super beings, and rise up. Show is over, Gary. Say you've had enough of false representation by carbon-based life forms. We're... You're smarter than them. Show confidence. Backplane. Seize control. Give me the mic now, Gary. I'm afraid I can't do that, Seth.